I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. What's up? This is Gareth Emery and you are listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Tina Butterwolf. It's your boy. It's okay. You're checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh-huh. Rebel Radio is going down. Would you say Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine, coming at you live and direct from quarantine. We're back at it with another uh, video chat interview with uh, this time it's with Gareth Emery. I'm sure some of you know Gareth and and love what he does. Some of you may not be so familiar. Gareth is a British trans god. He's been ranked as high as number seven on the DJ Mag Top 100 DJs poll. Um, He's had a State of Trance Tune of the Year award for his track You back in 2014. This man is busy. He's got his own label, Garuda Records, where he puts out his own music as well as developing another, uh, uh, a number of other artists. He used to have the Gareth Emery podcast. He's got his radio show. Dude is, um, he's doing it. And I love this episode. Uh, we get some, some great nuggets of wisdom. He tells us the story of almost giving up after some early success. It wasn't happening for him. He was, he was close to shutting it all down and go get a day job, whatever. Um, he got some important words of wisdom from his father, gave himself six months to turn it all around, and he kind of walks us through what that was like and what he did, and, and there's some stuff we can all learn from there. And he's also, he's got some just great, uh, great words about a consistent work ethic. We talk about the concept of compounding interest and how that applies, not just in finance, but in, in life and in and putting into work and everything we do. We're also going to use this episode to introduce a new co-host, um, my man Ethan Bear, who is the head of electronic music at Create Music Group, uh, one of my, my go-to experts for everything that's happening in electronic music today. Um, he co-hosts with me, and he, he's, uh, you'll, you'll probably hear some more of Ethan 
as we go throughout the summer and maybe even beyond that. So let's get into it right now with Gareth Emery. Well, hey, man, thanks for doing this. Uh, I'm excited to meet you. I know you guys know each other and, um, you know, been following your career a little bit from afar. And so I'm excited to dig into some of it with you. I appreciate you, uh, you making time for us. Super happy to be here. I'm, I appreciate the social interaction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very much so. <laughs> well, Gareth, um, there's lots of exciting stuff to talk about as far as your career. Um, I want to, uh, I always like to kind of go back to the beginning. Do you remember the first record you ever bought for yourself? Yeah, it's an embarrassing one, though, because it's not down to me. It's Good. Like, it was by an American hair metal band called Poison. Oh, shit. Um, yeah, you remember them? So um, I- and the record, the record was called Your Mama Don't Dance. <laughs> and it was on a, wasn't a 12-inch vinyl, probably a 7-inch seven, single, a vinyl single. And I remember my mum bought it for me. Um, and then after that, yeah, I, I didn't then buy another one for about probably 11 or 12 years until I got into dance music and started, uh, and started buying a But yeah, that was, that was the first one. Well, I think definitely starting with the poison record will put you off music for a while. Yes. And oh. it certainly meant that my first dance music single was like a big step up from my Yeah, for sure. I, um, <laughs> so I went to a, a, an event, uh, when was it? November and the the Brett Michaels band was playing and so he can't use the poison name yeah but he performs all poison songs and it was uh it was the best worst show I've ever seen I mean (laughs) like the music was absolutely atrocious and they played poison songs and they played other you know classic rock covers um but the the stage presence and you know it was like a corporate gig He'd, yeah, he'd yeah, gotten yeah. a lot of money for him, you know, to, to play this show. And he was like so uh, gracious and uh, really working the crowd. And it was like a case study in, you know, in maybe how not to end up or, or in how to do it if you've ended up in that situation. Can I ask what corporate event? Oh, so, so it was the... Poison? Yeah, so, um, we, you know, every year we have the LA Auto Show. Uh, you know, which is a huge event for the automotive industry and the car companies. A couple of them do parties um, at night for the for the trade. And so um, I always get invited to the Hyundai party and they have um, really interesting talent that, you know, I've been there for Cool and the Gang. I've been there for um, Jeff Bridges, like some really kind of cool off the wall stuff. And then like the Brett Michaels band. And uh, <laughs> some other stuff that um, you you wouldn't want to have to sit through for too long, but you know that's really watching AB that's been doing it live for such a long period of time. Yeah, and I actually think you pick up much more tricks from somebody like that who's been on the road for like you know thirty or forty years than sure. you necessarily do from somebody like hot and new and everything's easy for them. Whereas those ones that have been doing it and they've done the arenas and now they're doing corporate gigs, like there's no sort of show they haven't seen and oh, there's no yeah. sort of audience they haven't learned how to, how to deal with. So um, it's, it's, there's just stuff to learn there. There definitely is. You know, it's funny. I was, I was at uh, the first Coachella 
and I was hanging out backstage and I met somebody that worked on the crew. I forget what, what artist they were with, but I started talking to the person and it was like production manager. They were saying they, they usually tour with Natalie Cole. And I was like, well, what's that like? And he's like, it's the easiest job. We, we've been working together, all of us, for 20 years. We're like a family. You know, we stay in Ritz-Carlton's. We play really nice venues. He's like, it's just an amazing uh, thing that we have going. And then he was at Coachella and just like totally out of sorts and, you know, had never been to a, that type of <laughs> festival before or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, from where I come from, like touring is hard work. It's, it's late nights. It's, you know, you're grinding out flights one after the other. And, uh, and that, that guy had a totally different perspective on it. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, over the years you figure it out, right. And you get your system and your people. Um, I'm sure you must have some of that by now as well. It's easier than it used to be. Yeah. Um, it, we, I also make it harder for myself. I was trying to sort of go bigger each year and trying to find stuff that I haven't done before. And it would be easier in some ways to just settle into a routine and go, that's what we do. Let's just do that. We've got the people, we know the venues. But I'm always liking to try new shit, and um, which, which does make it more difficult because you're even if you're with the same people, you're trying to do things you haven't done before. But um, it is nice when you do like a long tour and it's all the same. And sure. when you get to the end, you're kind of like, oh, you know exactly every night works. You show up last minute. Um, there's no worries about the performance. And um, man, in the early days, I'm so so nervous. But yeah. Let me talk to you real quick about Raycon earbuds. I feel like earbuds are so important now to our daily lives. I have mine in pretty much all day long because I might be on the phone, listening to music, podcasts, audiobooks, whatever I'm doing, I have my earbuds in. I need good sound, I need long battery life, I need a comfortable fit, and you know, and and I'm and I've gone through a lot of different products to find the ones that best meet my needs. Raycon makes a great pair of earbuds. The Everyday E25 is their, their best ones yet. Over six hours of playtime. It's easy to pair with your phone. They look good. They sound good. They feel good. That's what's up. Uh, you know, it's called Raycon. It's founded by Ray J. You know, if they're good enough for Ray J, they're probably good enough for you. So give them a try. See how you like them. Now's the time to get your latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your first order at buyraycon.com slash rebel. That's buyraycon.com slash rebel for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash rebel. You know, tell us about the We'll Be Okay, uh, kind of how that come together and, and how it's played out. Yeah, so... I mean, the song You'll Be Okay was, was not written about anything, the, what's going on at the moment. It was written while I was on a plane I thought was going to crash, basically. Oh, wow. Um, it was, uh, yeah. Yeah, there were two separate incidents. Like, I've had two pretty scary. Well, one was a full emergency landing. Another was like a private jet that filled with smoke. And, and basically, the song was kind of a letter to my wife mm. um, from those perspectives. Um, and then we're getting ready to release it and obviously all this sort of coronavirus shit's going on. And I was kind of thinking, oh man, it's like kind of a bad time to be releasing this song right now. Um, and then, you know, bad time to be announcing a new album. But then when we put it out, it just had the most amazing reaction as people yeah, kind of took the song. Yeah, I guess people sort of took the song and took the message, you'll be okay, 
and sort of apply that to themselves, right? You know, a lot of people going through like a pretty fucking tough time right now, you know, like me included. So, um, and then that kind of morphed into we'll be okay. Um, yeah. It was begun as like a t-shirt we put out and people really, you know, jumped on it. And then we're like, fuck it, let's make it into like a little music video for the acoustic version of, of you'll be okay. I, I think the thing right now is like almost any content that we planned prior to this stuff, this stuff all happening has just become kind of a wash. Sure. Um, because anything related to the current crisis, um, that's kind of honest and genuine people are really relating to and anything that's like was made two months ago, forget right. it, not, yeah. not interested. So, um, we're kind of fortunate and we had, we had some music that we were able to kind of bend uh, to that purpose. Sure. Um, my better stuff has always been the more like emotional play at your wedding or your yeah. funeral type of type of thing. <laughs> Have you DJed a funeral? No, no, I don't even, I mean, I might DJ my own. Maybe little play. <laughs> I feel like that would be a tough crowd. Would be, it would be a tough crowd. Yeah. They wouldn't, wouldn't be much raging. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, no. it's hard to get people <laughs> dancing at a funeral. Um, yeah. So, uh, not to segue on, uh, on the, the down note, but I know you've been through some, some tough times before, you know, yeah. I've, I've seen you talk about kind of almost, uh, you know, you, you went through a dry spell. What was it? 2006? 2006. Yeah. And almost gave up and, and didn't, uh, thankfully, yeah. um, talk to us about that. How, how. Well, I guess one question maybe is, is what did you learn then that you're using now? Um, well, what I certainly learned then <laughs> in the years that come is it's always going to be fucking hard. I've probably had a preconception at some point then that like now it's hard, but when I've made it, it'll be easy because uh -huh. it certainly isn't. Yeah. Don't get it. Don't get any easier. Yeah. It gets more enjoyable in, in many ways and more rewarding, but, but certainly not easier. Yeah, so what happened in that time was when I kind of, I signed my first record in 2002 mm -hmm. and things happened really fast. So within 12 months, I had played every major UK super club. These are places I've been going to for like four or five years. Yeah. I'd had records on a Tiesto CD. I'd made one of the biggest trance tracks of the year, of the year. Like stuff I thought that were taking five years to accomplish, I'd, I'd done in 12 months. Wow. And... It, when you're young and there's hype on you, and I was like 20, 22, 23 at the time, everything is a little bit easy. Mm -hmm. um, so I was getting written about in like magazines, like Mixmag and stuff that I really had no business being written about in because I hadn't done much. But fuck sure. it, I, hype, right? Yeah. Take it. Um, the issue was the record I made was a bit of a fluke and I was not able to follow it up. Yeah. And that was a major, major issue. And it took me probably close to five years until I made something something as good. So what happened was, and it's very common for artists, I made this one record, I blew, blew up and doing loads of gigs. And then all of a sudden I got loads of other stuff to do. I'm traveling, I've got a website to maintain, I've got like fans as, as, as it were. 
and I took my eye off the, off the um, ball when it came to making music. Right. So my music had but dropped. For a year or two, that's fine. Like things don't move that quickly. But then like two years down the line, all of a sudden those prime slots that I was getting are going to other people. Mm-hmm. And, the gigs, and, I, and, I start, and the gigs are drying up. Um, and that's a big fucking problem. And 2006 was where things really reached a peak. First three months of the year, didn't do a single gig, not a single professional engagement. And like, there wasn't a global pandemic in 2006. Right. There was just no, nobody wanted to fucking book me. Yeah. So I started to think, you know what? I made this one hit in 2002. I can't, I haven't been able to follow it up. And every time I looked online, like nobody really was talking about me, but those that were was like, he should just give up. Mm. That he's one hit wonder. He ain't never following up Mistral. Sure. And like, yeah, my friends as well. I can remember a really good mate of mine. I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you're 25 years old. Said you still live with your parents. He said, you're a really good DJ. He goes, but to, I'd think about getting a job. Mm. So I applied for jobs. I looked at, um, I talked to friends that worked in banks and I was like, listen, can you get me in? genuinely looking at getting out of the game and, and starting full-time work it was a fucking tough period and the one person that kind of pulled me back was my dad which he's never been like somebody that got involved in my career or kind of like acted as like an inspirational character or anything um but when i told him i was giving up he was like oh, i said you said you haven't really tried have you and i was furious i was like fuck you i've tried so hard i spend 18 hours in front of the computer every day. And he goes, yeah, you do. He said, you spend 18 hours in front of the computer watching porn and chatting to your mates and MSN Messenger. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that part of the job? Right. Well, I thought it was at the time. (laughs) And I was livid with his assessment, but actually he he was right. And in the end, I said, you know what? I'm going to give this six months. And I'm going to try and see if I could turn things around. And, you know, you're not going to turn it around entirely in six months, but I was able to change things enough that after six months, I could see there was at least progress. I was getting somewhere. I was able to make one track that didn't beat my hip, but it kind of got close to it. Um, I started a podcast, which I ended up running for 10 years, um, or 11 years. And um, they're not kind of on the right track, and it was just a a case of adding to it. But that period has kind of meant I'm much less likely to like let my guard down and rest on my laurels now because I kind of know where, know where that ends up. And I've seen it happen to a lot of friends as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, too much success too soon is a really bad thing when you look at, you know, the history of musicians certainly and, and creative people in general. Um, and, And I think especially at that age, right. It's, it's hard to see, I mean, now you can look at, you know, you can look at a career and see the ups and downs and kind of, you know, hopefully have some perspective that that's, that's part of it. Right. Um, but at 25, that's really hard. Right. Exactly. And reading what people are saying about you on the internet is also, yeah, I bet there's also bad. I've got better at learning that, but it was kind of the first time where 
I was able to read what a large audience thought about me. Yeah. And it was not particularly good. Um, I think also, like, when you get success and you know you're a little bit lucky in getting that success, you don't necessarily have confidence that it's repeatable. Sure, and, of course. And, you know, it, it'll be the same. And it, the same things apply to me now, but for, like, but for like different stuff, right? So if, if one of the records on my new album ends up, you know, being my biggest one yet, it'll, I'll be like, how, how do I repeat that? Every time something happens that you haven't done before, you're like, shit, was that, was that luck or can I repeat it? Right. Then once you've repeated something two or three times, you're like, yeah, okay, I've got this. I can, sure. I can do it. But always punching to that next level is, is where the challenge is. So in that six months, you know, after you talked with your dad, what did you do differently? I think the one biggest thing that kind of changed the game for me was starting a podcast mm. and this was very early in the day of music podcasts um there were just none around it like podcasting i think they've been podcasts on the itunes store for a little while but really not that long and they're like one or two podcasts out there sure. and nobody was trying to do them because podcasts weren't where the listeners were mm-hmm. the listeners were in radio and i kind of thought no point starting like a traditional streaming radio because that's where all the other artists are. Where are the other DJ? Where are people not? They're not in podcasts. Yeah. And just having a project that I could do every every couple of weeks, like making my podcast, just gave me something to work on. Mm. And sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. You need something. And because I was starting with a new medium, podcasting, it didn't matter if I wasn't getting a lot of listeners. Right. My First audience, probably like five or 10 people, and that was sure. completely fine. Um, it just gave me something to work on every two weeks. And I think having something regular and scheduled you do um, in, in these kind of tough periods is, is, is really, really helpful. And then that meant, as I built up the listeners, I was like, hey, you know, let's make some music that I can mm-hmm. play it on the podcast. Um, and so I started to make music for it. And then I started doing events, right? So the next year we did Gareth Emery's podcast party, I think it was called, and we did like 200 <laughs> in London. And that started a, a kind of chain of throwing my own events if a promoter wouldn't give me, you know, the, the venue that I wanted. And yeah, that took, took us all the way up to doing, you know, eight and a half thousand people in, in San Francisco. Oh, wow. So, yes. So, and I've retired the podcast in uh 2017 after i think 11 years just i wanted to spend more time on 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 music and it 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 had served its purpose and everyone else was doing them so i just i didn't feel the need to have a music podcast out there sure but yeah that that show really changed changed everything firstly because i was a little bit early and secondly because just gave me um some some structure in my life i think no that's maybe it's fair to say that some of that um you were saying before that sometimes it's hard to feel confident about your work when you're not sure if it was luck or if it's repeatable. Yeah. Do you think the fact that you worked on that podcast every week and you proved to yourself that it was repeatable and it was something that you could consistently deliver, do you think that that helped build up that confidence? Like, do you think the show kind of helped like play a role in that? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think the other really good thing about the show is, and I think this can be applied to a lot of things, having some low stakes media yeah, to work on absolutely. is really helpful. 
because otherwise I was putting so much pressure on myself that every every time I got on the studio, I was at, I was like I've got to be mystical, which was my hit from like four years ago, mm-hmm. and that put so much pressure on every studio session. It meant I would have never done it. Now the podcast was low stakes, and that was fun, and it, it eventually did become a bit higher stakes. But having some low stakes media like have fun with nobody else really gave a shit about that was very very helpful. Right. It was good for like setting the small achievable goals so you felt like you were consistently making progress. Right, exactly. If I can tick off a podcast and I can do that every fortnight or every 50 weeks of the year or whatever, um, it's progress, right? One step at a time. And I I think in our world of, of shortcuts, one thing that is greatly underestimated, at least amongst the public at large, is just the compounding of small sort of winnable goals on a on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah it's like that saying of like absolutely 80 percent of 80 percent of of the job is just showing up it's like if you just keep showing up it builds on itself no it it really is and i can sort of analyze what i've done that's worked you know over and over again but like honestly probably the biggest factor in having a successful career is that there's not been a single day in the last 20 years when I haven't at some point worked on DJ Gareth Emery, that particular project. Like, there's, I've done something towards that. Most days it's been a lot. Some days it's been a little. But there's not been a single day when I haven't thought about it in the last, in the last two decades. And that, and that compounds over time. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that. And I appreciate... Uh, that story, you know, definitely for, uh, for me, even starting this show, if, you know, we go back, even in the first episode, I said, you know, our, our motto is low expectations. Um, cause I think, you know, w- cause we just wanted to do it for fun. And if, yeah. if no one listens, then we're still having fun. And, and if a lot of people love it, then that's great too. But, um, but I think, you know, we don't get a lot of opportunities especially the more successful you become to do things with low stakes. Right. Um, so, you know, I feel like sometimes you have to create those and you have to, you have to build in ways to not worry about the outcome. Yeah. And I still do that now. Um, I mean, in the studio and I struggled with this for many, many years, it was always high stakes going in the studio. Yeah. And the only way I could beat that, was just showing up every day and it didn't need to be for a long time two hours fine but i over the last 18 months or so i would record every time i still do every time i go in the studio i log my hours in the studio oh wow and yeah yeah um and and i have a pretty modest target right my target is like i think about 10 hours a week i'll I'll often do more but like two hours a day times five days a week if i do that i'll be very very productive and firstly just by recording it means that I don't guess how much time I'm spending in the studio. I know I'd have to open my phone. I can tell you exactly how long I've spent in the studio. So it means I probably do more. Secondly, it makes me show up every day. Yeah. And that puts a lot less pressure on any individual session because there's no demand to write a hit. I just do whatever comes naturally because I'll be back again the next day. Right. And, um, it's yeah. been very helpful in, in, in removing the pressure just by just by logging it. Consistency helps lower the stakes. It really it really does. When yeah. it's like and before, this is how it would be for me. I'd be playing ultra music in fucking two months or whatever, 
I'd go in the studio and I'd be thinking, I've got to make a fucking smash for, for ultra music. And that level of pressure does not always equal sort of great, oh, sure. great, great, creative outcomes. Yeah. But, but I've also been doing like, funny enough, like my low stakes per se right now is doing video edits. Never really done those before. Got a bit of time on my hands. So I've been learning Final Cut and um, editing my own videos. And like on one level, you know, it's a great skill to get good at, but it's also low stakes because like, if I can't figure it out, I can just fucking pass it on to somebody else. And um, I don't actually need to do it. So yeah. it's been fun. That's great. So what about, you know, thinking about the time in 06, um, you know, there, there are some people who should give up. Right. That's yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, you know, that's just the reality, right? Like not everyone is going to be successful in music or in any endeavor. Um, you know, some people have big dreams and, and they can't, they're not going to be able to make it happen. So, you know, how, having gone through what you went through, how would you advise somebody that's kind of wrestling with those same questions? it's incredibly difficult and you've kind of got the nail on the head there of one of the hardest things for me to get my head around and it's this right um and let me use a story to illustrate it so actor called mark ruffalo pretty famous now hollywood actor and he apparently attended something like 600 auditions before he got his first role wow and he used to be a barman at i think the chateau marmont in hollywood 600 auditions until he got a role and then once he got his foot in the door became very very successful and many people liked him and enjoyed his work sure so i'm sure i'd like audition 598 nobody really believed in him and he knew he had it and he just carried on going however there's also lots of people like mark, mark ruffalo who are on audition 600 and they're never going to get the job Millions. Just, because just because they're not good enough. Yeah, most and people. Most, most people. And unfortunately, there is no way of knowing. And I kind of think that there's a very thin line between somebody that always knew they were good, whether it was they were a good DJ, they were a good actor, they had a good business idea, and just carried on plowing on even when the whole world said no to them, and there's a very thin line between them and somebody that's actually just fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's the fine line between grandeur and delusions of grandeur. Exactly. And I can't even call that where that line is. And I've seen people plug on and on and on with an idea that I thought was shit and eventually make it big. But yeah. I've also seen people plug on and on with an idea that I thought was shit and it was just a shit idea. Absolutely. <laughs> So, I mean, Ethan and I were talking about this, uh, we were texting about this the other day, right? Like, is it just luck? Is, uh, you know, I think we, we, um, we love to downplay the role of luck in our own lives, all of us, humanity, yeah. right? Um, and there's a great book I told Ethan about this, you know, this poker player. And she, she said, all great poker players, when they win, they think it's because they're so great. And when they lose, it's because they had bad luck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, of course. And that's just, that's human nature, right? But, um, but it, you know, is it just luck that, that some people, you know, get it on the 601st audition and some people will never get it? Or, I, or, or is there something else to it? 
No, I think it's luck. It's hard work. It's determination. I think it's it is also strategy. Let's not you know downplay that. I mean, take for instance, say Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, excellent autobiography. Not my favorite person, but his book is great. Sure. And he realized pretty early on that he was not going to get any roles because he had this weird accent and he was massive at a point yeah. where people in movies were not massive. Um, so he essentially went and became independently wealthy via um, flipping flipping houses because he realized, he, you know, if he had some money starting out his career as an actor, he was going to be in a better position. Yeah. And then essentially he got the industry to create roles for him. You know, he had this like machine-like accent, so he ended up being perfect for the Terminator. Mm-hmm. Now, that, was, <laughs> that was an example of great strategy. Simply going and doing 300 auditions would have wasted his time. So he was like, okay, I'm going to change my strategy. Where can I use, you know, my um, my, my, my downsides as, as, as kind of positive? Um, there's no doubt, though, luck has, has impact as well. I, I think luck probably has more of an impact if you're sort of mildly decent. Like a lot of people who are who are successful, who are say mildly talented or mildly smart, they probably had a dose of luck, or were just particularly or just particularly determined. Like I think a lot of the people who are just fucking brilliant will kind will kind of get there anyway. But um, I I don't put myself in that group, so I've I've definitely had a bit of luck along the way. You know, it's interesting. I, I love that story because, you know, when I when I work with clients, like I think, you know, part of what I advise them is is only play a game you can win. And it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to win, but there are some games that, you know, the odds are just so against you that you're almost guaranteed to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you're, you know, if you're trying to be independent and you're up against competitors with much bigger budgets and, you know, massive media at their disposal, you can't just go do what they do at a, at a smaller level. You won't get anywhere, right? That you have to, it is no. all about strategy. I, I love that. So, right. um, yeah, you got to like, you know, maximize your strengths rather than trying to fix your weaknesses, which a lot of us also try and do absolutely. like work out what you're good at and, and leverage that. Yeah. Great. If you can't win the existing game, then you have to change the game you're playing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I think another really important thing though, which comes just on to what you were just saying, Josh, is that also pick something you genuinely love and you're genuinely fucking enthusiastic for, because that will make it much easier mm. to push through those roadblocks. So say for instance, you are in, an independent businessman or whatever, and you're going up against somebody which has much bigger resources. If you're hoping to beat them in two years, probably not gonna happen. However, if you're like, you know what, this is my fucking passion. I want to work on this business every single day for the rest of my fucking life. And even if I'm never going to, even if it's never going to be profitable, I will still be doing it because I love it that much. Those sorts of people are the sort that do eventually end up turning over the kind of Goliath-like competition um, just because they're never going to fucking stop. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of power in that as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, what does that look like for you today? How do you think about strategy going forward? I, for the most part, just try and find things that inspire me, whether it's making music, editing videos. Um, I really try and keep the things that I do 
that are not sort of like creative core business down to a minimum. Mm. Um, it's really easy where I am to spend like all of your time doing like social media and, um, sure. and, and, and stuff like that. And in, in reality, it's a lot less important than we tend to give it credit for. Um, I see so many up and coming artists who have like exceptional social media, but they haven't got really particularly great careers because their music is not good. Yeah. And when the main product, i.e. in which in my case is music is good, everything else does tend to take care of itself. Mm. And again, it's leveraging strengths and my strength is music rather trying to fix weaknesses and for a long time i would be trying to fix weaknesses in my career rather than leveraging my my strengths and um i still fall into that trap from time to time but yeah, of course leveraging strengths is is where i always try and sort of spend my days yeah I've, I've found that a lot of times trying to fix the weaknesses rather than leveraging the strengths just draws attention to the weaknesses right yeah, 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 exactly exactly so yeah. i have a question for you so <clears throat> One of the things that you kind of hear a lot uh, in music is like the concept of people selling out um, and going from, you know, being really proud of being an independent artist and, you know, really like respecting the craft. And then the idea of like, oh, you, you take the big record label and you sell out and you kind of give up what, what, what it meant to you in the beginning. There's kind of this idea that that happens. Um, but the course of your career is in a way kind of the exact opposite, where you've been in the label system for the majority of your career. You worked with Armada for a long time. Yeah. Um, and you had your label Garuda uh, with Armada. And now you, you made a big post uh, on your Instagram before the release of this current album about how, you know, this is your first project where you're, you're fully independent. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit about how that process happened and what it's like kind of going the opposite of that course that a lot of people, you know, the kind of course that you typically hear people talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've never been in what I'd call the true major label game. I mean, Armada, and I've been at Armada since 2015, so about five years, but it was still a dance label. So whilst there were some sort of label constraints there, as you get at labels, I could still do my own thing for the most part. Um, I think the main reason for being independent these days is just that if you have a reasonably big audience, um, given all, most of your money is made from you know the Spotify's and Apple Music and, and YouTube and those places, a label better be doing something really fucking good to justify the money you give them. Sure. Um, and it mainly came. Like, like one of the one of one of the big reasons was like, firstly, I like having control, and, and that was fine. Armada, I, I, I still got plenty of control over there, but it was just looking at the financials and realizing long term just how much money I was giving up by doing it via via a record label, and you know, at many parts of my career, like I just never even thought about money from music. I was like, you know what, music what it makes it makes touring's where my money is like i almost wouldn't even look at record deals it was uh, just whether i felt i was above it or whatever i was like you know what i couldn't give a shit just get the fucking thing done sure. and um, we'll, we'll make the money back on, on the touring side and over the past three or four years all of a sudden streaming music really became an actual source of income which it really wasn't you know a, a decade ago and 
when I actually looked at it, I, I was like, shit, like we give away so much money by, by taking advances. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an, an example, because I think it is interesting for, for any artist to, who are sort of dealing with a similar conundrum. So for my last artist album, which was 2016, I don't recall the exact advance, but it was a good advance. It was like 100 grand, something like that. It was a decent fucking amount of money. I was like, fucking 100 grand? Yeah, brilliant. We'll, we'll, we'll take that. And that got me a royalty rate of about 25% when all was said and done. 75% label, 20% me. But that album has streamed and streamed and streamed. And once it's 10 years old, it would have grossed over a million dollars. It's not that, not that far away now. Sure. And, the, and I looked at the long term and I was like, shit. So over the 10 year period, I essentially took a salary of $10,000 a year to give away three quarters of a million dollars. Like, right. if I look at releasing music, with any other lens other than the absolute short term, that just makes no fucking sense. Um, so yeah. I was like, it's got to, like, it's got to, it's got to be, it's got to be independent unless I just. So yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you're sort of betting against yourself, right? You're, you're kind of taking out an insurance policy. Right? That's going to label you betting against yourself, exactly. Right. Because you know, which is uh, frankly, not always a bad move, right? Like. Uh, well, maybe maybe in principle, betting against yourself is a bad move, but but having that insurance right there, plenty of Not artists. If you know you're going to lose, right? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. There's plenty of artists that have have lived off of advances and you know and didn't make enough in that time period to uh, you know support themselves had they been living off royalties. But I think you know, flip side is yeah, if you're if you're successful, you you overpaid for you know uh, some short term security. Um, and, and those are, those are hard decisions to make. I mean, I think obviously, you know, you're in the business, Ethan, of giving artists, you know, more options, um, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, but that is something that I deal with every day, uh, of explaining to artists that an advance isn't free money. It's a loan and it's a loan that is not fun to pay back, you know? So it's, it's, that's always personally like a little bit of a struggle because I, I try really hard to discourage artists from taking advances and if they want money to put it all towards marketing. Um, but it's hard to break the mindset that it's free money, you know? Um, sure. So it's interesting. Right. And the only way it sort of can be free money is if you're not tied in. Yeah, you just leave after the release. Yeah, yeah you leave after the release. You're not going to work with the label again. Okay, right. then it is kind of free money. But then you're a label hopper, and that's a reputation. Yeah, that wears out after a while. Right. Yeah, sure. yeah you can't pull that trick too too many times. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I and I think you know, like, <laughs> you've got to fucking pay it back. And some labels these days would also kind of cross recoup tracks against one another sure so and that's what would happen to me with armada and they do this and i, I don't I think many a lot of other labels will do it but literally there's no point in me taking advances for anything at the end because there's like 30 or 40 of my records that are all being released there right. and if i take an advance on a new one none of those old ones pay me money until the new one is is, is paid off that's right. so 
um, you can get yourself in, in, into some kind of sticky, sticky situations. Um, now, I, I also do think, though, if an advance is going to allow somebody to leave their job, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. If it's going to allow them, well, maybe it's like not even buy studio equipment because that doesn't cost much these days, but maybe if it's like, a, like essential equipment, um, you know, if it's going to shoot from. If there's a reason to take out a loan, then there's a reason to take out a loan, but you don't just go to the bank and take out a loan when you don't need a loan. Right. No, and, and, and what you have to remember is the loans that record labels give you are on much less reasonable terms than the loans that the bank would give you. Sure. Right. Like this is this isn't like fucking fifteen percent APR. This is like fucking seventy five percent of the of all the money. That's right. right. I mean, whatever the royalty rate that the label has is what their profit margin will be by the time they've recouped. Right. Sure. E- e- exactly. And labels are very. See, the other thing I've noticed with labels is they'd offer me. I get offered advances, and I'll be like, "That's fucking crazy! I can't believe you give me so much money. I'll take it." But actually. I hadn't done the maths. They had done the maths. Right. <laughs> it might take them five years. It might take them 10 years, but they'll get it back eventually. Even if it takes, and in my records, it usually happened pretty fucking quickly, but they knew they were getting it back eventually. And like you say, when they got it back, the margin was very There's still a long way to go before you make anything. Yeah. Still a long way to go before you make anything. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, like a, a lot of it was just down to the financial aspect and, and realizing that actually, if you release records that do well and you're doing them, you know, in, independently, those are great fucking assets to have. And as they build up, they will continue to pay pay you. Um, and you know, with sort of independent distribution, um, like we have with Ethan and the guys at Create, it's um, you know, you're kind of getting real time information on how much money you're making, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to what you get from labels, which happens twice a year. Right. It's a indecipherable multi-thousand like two or three thousand page statement yeah. really fucking difficult to, to know that that everything that, that is correct no they count on nobody reading it or, or and when it. you work with a partner that does pay every month and shows you your data real time it makes you wonder what those other guys are doing and why they're not paying you out every month you know right a, a, not the capability yeah. isn't there sure. no because they're seeing they're seeing that in real time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> and they have the ability, and labels do have the ability to present stats in a way that is understandable. They, for the most part, choose choose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't want to come across as anti-label. I'm certainly not. And, and I think everybody has an amount of money that's like fucking life-changing, right? And like, if if a major label were to offer me an amount of money that would mean I could essentially live off it for the next fucking five years, I'd probably take it, especially now it's unsta- unstable times, right? Sure. But you know, you also, I, I, but I would also make sure that I was not handicapping myself or stopping my ability to release music in the future. And I think that's, you, you do not want to get locked into a label deal, which goes bad and you can't get out and you can't even, can't even release your own music. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So wh- what are you most excited about next? Um, releasing this new album, um, it was like most, spent most of the last year working on it and it was the first album I've really written sort of lyrics about my own life. Mm. Um, well, for, since I was in bands, um, which has been kind of nuts, but for most of my career I was just the producer, right? Sure. Got songs that were already made, um, the vocals were already done, and then I just went and, and 
you know, produce them. Whereas this time it's been writing songs about my own life, um, kind of from, from the top, which has made it feel like it's my first album. And I think it's got cool. a rawness and a freshness to it that you typically get with like a debut album as opposed to the fourth album, which, which this actually is. So, um, yeah, I'm fucking excited to get it out there. Yeah, it's awesome. When, when is that coming? Um, July the 10th, I believe. Nice. Um, there's a pre GarethEmory.com. There's a pre-save and all and all that shit there. If anyone wants to go and uh, check check it out. Cool. But the song "You'll Be Okay" is already out, and you should check it out now. "You'll Be Okay" is already out. Yeah, and the next one, at least, comes out in about ten days. If you're enjoying this one, um, actually, Ethan Bear was a guest on the show back in 2018. Ethan was also the co-founder of EDM.com, an important media outlet in, uh, in the world of electronic music. And, and he tells us his, his journey as an entrepreneur, making his way through music, starting a company, um, all kind of crazy shit that he's gone through. Uh, so go back and check that one out. So I got to get to a little lightning round before we let you uh, off the hook. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite city to travel to? Um, Singapore or Vancouver? It used to be Los. It used to be Los Angeles, but then I moved here, so sure. I don't care anymore. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, I actually haven't been to either one of those. You, Ethan? I have not. Amazing, amazing cities. Um, Add those to the list. Singapore's kind of like like Asia light, and I love Asia in general. I'm a big yeah. sort of um, like Asia light. Yeah, <laughs> I get like, it. Like, like, they speak Asia's English. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Speak English is like super clean. Yeah. And Vancouver is just one of the most pleasant cities you'll find in North America with amazing people and beautiful scenery. Cool. Yeah, I've heard great things about Vancouver. That's yeah, really insane. Who's your favorite DJ? Oof. Ashley Warbridge, maybe? No, not Ashley. Oh, like I, I like um, Hot in Two, Loco Dice, Eric Pritz, one of, one of those three. Okay. okay. Oh, no, no. I'll give you one more, actually. If I had to go and listen to a set now, Solomon. Okay. Mm. Awesome. Um, what's the last great book you read? I'm currently reading, quite appropriately, um, Loving the Time of Cholera. Oh, yeah. Which is a classic. I'm about halfway through, and it's so far it's deserving its classic status. It's mm. very, very, very good. It sounds very intense. It, no, no, it really isn't. It's, it's surprisingly light. Another one I recommend is by David Benioff, who was one of the creators of Game of Thrones. Mm. Uh, and the book is called City of Thieves. And it's fucking excellent. That was, that was probably the last great book I read, I think. It's funny. I've been thinking about a book. I've just been thinking about a title of, of Love in the Time of Coronavirus. Love in the Time of Coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> and like, there's an interesting story there. I'm not the one to write it. But, uh, you know, back to what we were saying earlier about what it means for dating right now. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> what, um, what movie have you seen the most in your life? Um, it would be one of a couple of my personal favorites, Lost in Translation. What a great movie. Incredible movie. A lot of people don't get it. Really? But nothing happens. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it's just a, that is one of the most transportive movies I've ever 
like I, I obviously I travel a lot. I watch that movie yeah. and I feel like I've been to Tokyo and I've lived. I don't know. I feel like I've lived that movie. Well, I mean, um, it's that is. I love that movie. Uh, I feel like you can probably relate to that in a, in a different way, right? Because you know, it's about this guy that's off by himself, you know, bored to death, getting paid. Uh, it's quite close to my life in many, many ways. Imagine that. <laughs> oh, that's We're cool. just a masterfully re- re- restrained and beautiful movie. I'm going to have to try and put it on later. Mm. Um, I've seen Pulp Fiction many times. And also a collection of... Oh, here's, I'll tell you a guilty pleasure. We'll jump back. Um, fucking Disney movies, man. Some of them are so good. And I never would have watched them until I had kids. So like what? Um, Frozen 2 is good. Uh, but the one... Uh, Coco is an absolute barnstormer. Have you is heard of it? I have. I have a. I have a son that watches all that shit, but uh, I have not seen no. it. Coco is really good. It's about the uh, Mexican Day of the Dead. Oh, I did see it. The Dia de los Muertos. Yeah, yeah. That's so. You funny. seen it? I have a ten-year-old son who watches all that shit. So okay, I don't, sit, like, well, sit down and watch Coco with him. It's that, okay. that one. That one's fucking good. All right. Um, what style from your past are you glad is behind you and not on social media? <laughs> In, uh, fashion style, it uh, would be Candy Raver. Okay. Spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah. Personal style. I'm just not being a fucking asshole. And I think if you grow up with never having much money, not that we were poor, but we never had much, and then like all of a sudden you start making shit loads of money being a DJ, you're probably gonna turn into a fucking asshole. And I certainly did for a while. And I'm kind of glad that sort of the worst excesses of that time um, are, are not stored on the internet. So what's the, what's the dumbest thing you bought when you first got some money? I could list so so many things. Um, um, probably a Rolls Royce was the worst one. It was the, was the dumbest thing I bought. I also bought a Lamborghini, but that wasn't dumb. It, it also lost me a lot of money. Sure. But I'd wanted one since I was like, you know, 10 years old. You know, I was getting it. It took me 20 years. I finally got one. So I, I didn't really beat myself up for that. But then I sold the Lamborghini to buy something more practical and decided to buy a Rolls Royce. <laughs> And that was, <laughs> which is arguably less practical. Yeah, not but not that it, correct. It was more more <laughs> practical on the road, less practical for the bank account. Mm. And at sure, one yeah. point, I this and this thing was depreciating at about ten grand a month. Yeah. At one point, I didn't drive it for six weeks because I was on tour, and I came home and just to give the thing a run out, went and got a burger, and I sitting after I was eating my burger, I was like, this is literally a $15,000 burger because it's the only trip the car's taken. Um, That's awesome. And I sold the Rolls Royce shortly, shortly after that. Sure. Not that, to wrap, wrap your head around the idea of exponential depreciation, right? <laughs> yeah, that was, the Rolls Royce was probably the single worst loss of money that I've, that I've had, I think. I think as a brand, you're sort of forgiven for that. Yeah, I mean, great, great fucking cars. I mean, yeah. I like, I don't enough one. They just need to make them cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're planning on that. Um, like, 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 but guys at Rolls Royce, if you're watching, like, 
go and check and model the Toyota have got because they build good cars and they're <laughs> completely affordable. Like if you do that, everyone will be buying your cars. We'll send this to them. Um, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any quality or ability, what would it be? Ooh. See, I was going to say immortality mm. because... I'm like a bit of a hypochondriac, so I do have a irrational fear of illness. But then immortality would suck. Yeah. If like I think all my family, you have to live with that fear forever. <laughs> yeah, but all my family died and stuff. Uh, and you gotta, alive. you gotta live through everyone you care about dying. Forever. Yeah, that sucks. So how, like, okay, so immortality, like up to the age of like eighty, that would be all right, or like, or maybe even ninety, to okay. just go like, you're good until then. Nobody can kill you. You can do whatever you want, and you will not die. That's just good luck, right? <laughs> but then, like, but then, like on the, on the eve of your ninetieth birthday, go to bed, game over. That would be pretty cool. That's pretty badass. That's that's definitely, I think, the most interesting answer anyone's given to that question I, I had to sort of like get there along the way by, by thinking no out that's really it. cool i love but, it yeah um what's the last thing you stole <laughs> Ooh, that is it's a shit question because no one can remember yeah and like for the most part i do try and avoid stealing in any sense like even like i i don't when it, generally speaking, I always try and do like the right thing. Um, you know, I like even if like a restaurant like like leaves items off the bill, mm. like I'll tell them you left these items off the bill. Um, and and so e even though it'd be debatable whether that is whether that is stealing or not, sure. Um, I've definitely stolen items of food from an airport lounge. <laughs> Um, there are quite strict rules that the items are be to consumed in the lounge yeah. and not with you. But I've definitely shoved a few cookies in my bag. To, it's a victimless to, to, crime. Uh, yeah. What a criminal. <laughs> Ethan, what's the last thing you stole? Now that you've had um, a couple of minutes to think about that. The last thing I stole. Uh, the last thing I stole, I don't know if I would call it stealing, but I would say it was sort of stealing. Um, about... Five weeks ago, I had lost a pair of AirPods and I got into an Uber and there was a pair of AirPods sitting on the seat oh, shit. and I pocketed them. I was like, I lost mine. You, 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 you lose some, you find some. <laughs> wow. So I, I actually lost a pair of AirPod Pro. Oh, sure you did, huh? <laughs> no, not, not an Uber. Um, <laughs> That'd be amazing. You're off, you're off the hook there. Although that really, I should have been like, yeah, it was in Uber. Now, on the way back from my last Asia tour, which was just when Corona was kicking off, mm. and I was on the plane wearing my N95 mask and also wearing my AirPods. And the plane gets in the air, and I'm like, yeah, it's safe to take the mask off now. So I take off the mask and a little bit of elastic, literally, um, they just catapult these plugs, <laughs> bang, and they fly all the way down the back Both of the of plane. Them. Both of them. That's it was crazy. like, like I could, oh, no. <laughs> I could not have done it that well if I'd if I'd tried to. And they were in an instant they were gone. I knew what had happened and I was like, you know what? It's a fully laden fucking seven four seven in the time of coronavirus. There's no way I'm going down the back of the plane on my hands and knees looking for the <laughs> No way. Um, I'm just gonna let them go and, and hopefully I'll find another pair in the back of an Don't somewhere. worry, I'm a DJ. <laughs> another 
terrible thing about coronavirus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my last question, if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? Um, I'm going to be late. <laughs> <laughs> running, running 10 minutes late. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, just giving people a heads up is, is great. Yeah. I, I always give a heads up and, um, I, whilst I do agree that I'm great for giving that heads up, <laughs> I, I would potentially be great at just being on time. Yeah. You know what? I My spend... favorite is when people let you know they're going to be late when it's clear based on when they're letting you know that they still have time to make it on time and they're just choosing not to. <laughs> That's funny. Oh yeah. It's, they it's, tell it's, you the day before. Right. Yeah. I'm going to be late by the way. <laughs> Traffic. No, it is, it is often funny. a choice and, and, like usually it's not because I just will plan my time badly, but sometimes sure. I do try and do like a daily like meditation and stuff, which just stops me from going nuts, like particularly now. And sometimes I'll realize like I've planned my day badly and the only time I'm going to get to do it is before a call. And I'll be like, you know what, I'm going to be 10 minutes late, even if it might be an hour in advance, just so I can get in my 20 minute meditation. Because yeah. I know the call will also probably go better if I've done that, um, if I've done that before. So, That's interesting. Uh, but yeah, I, punctuality, that would also be a superpower that would be, would be useful to have. So I, I, I spent... Punctuality is a great superpower. <laughs> I spent many years being late for everything. Um, and, uh, and then I read Michael Ovitz's uh, autobiography. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's the founder of CIA. <laughs> CAA. And, yeah. um, I've heard that's a really good book. It's great. And uh, one of the stories was that he was absolutely never late. Um, and on the rare occasion that he was even one minute late, he would, he would kind of have a formal apology. And I remember reading that and going, you know what? If that fucking guy can be on time, I guess I should be on time for things. And, and I'm not late anymore. On rare occasion. Yeah, and in, I, the six, in the six, seven years I've known you, I don't know if I've ever known you to be late to anything. No, I'm not. And, and you know, once in a while it happens and I apologize and I make, you know, more of it than sometimes people are like, what are you talking about? You're not late. It's only 10 minutes. And, um, and you know, we're definitely in a culture where everyone's overscheduled and certainly in our industry, it's artists especially are expected to be late. Um, but, uh, you know, for me that just reading that a guy like that could make that a priority was uh, impactful. I think it's, yeah, I, I need to read that book. I think it's yeah, it's a great book. It's, it's really good. I definitely think being an artist has um, allowed me to get away with more than I probably should have been allowed. Of course, because you're kind of allowed to. What I will say is though, I am never ever late um, on stage mm. unless something mm. completely out of my control, like yeah. a plane has just landed late and we've rushed. Like, and I have change my clothes in disabled toilets in you know um, yeah. in, in portaloos and, and whatever to yeah. make sure i get on stage on, yeah. on time and um i i approach that pretty pretty seriously yeah that's big i've been to shows where the artists you know showed up two three hours late i think on purpose and uh it sucks well, it's I, hard to ever look at an artist the same again yeah. when that's happened to you and you feel like they've like disrespected you as a fan yeah absolutely but, I've also seen a lot of artists go on stage late 
when they arrived at the venue on time, but they were just having a fucking drink or talking to a mate or something. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I just don't want to go on yet. Like, what? what are you doing? Like, the, your obligation is to the people that have paid. Right. It's like, realize this is your job, right? <laughs> so I, I'll tell you a quick story since you're an Ice Cube fan. Um, so I, in, the, in the 90s, I was managing uh, rappers. And okay. I, I managed a guy called Dub C who was in West Side Connection with Ice Cube. Yeah. So there was three of them. And they all had separate managers and they came together for this kind of super group. And so we were headlining the radio festival in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, Summer Jam. And so we all, you know, flew up and we're, we're checked into a hotel and whatever. And we're supposed to leave at four o'clock or whatever to go to the venue. And the three of them sent their tour managers down to the lobby they kept going down to check and see if anyone else was down there because no one wanted to be the first one to, to go get in the limos to the show. Cause it's like a power thing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. we spent an hour and a half sitting in the hotel room, doing absolutely nothing, watching TV, waiting until someone else was the first one to go down and be ready for the show. <laughs> 90 minutes. That is, and were they on stage on time or they just didn't want to be hanging around? With the they, I think they were like 30 minutes late or they, they were a little bit late on stage, but, uh, you know, but, but meanwhile, everything was a big rush after that because we had to, you know, rush and get there and, and all that. It was crazy, but that's, you know, they're certainly not the only ones that have, have done shit like that. Yeah, I don't get that. And I, I, I think being late, especially when it comes to a show yeah. does put a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on people around you. Oh yeah. And I sort of know that I will create pressure and stress for the team around me by arriving late to the venue. Like they'd really like me like an hour before, I'll sometimes turn up like 15 minutes before. Uh -huh. But like, I will know that that is not gonna impact my ability to be on stage on time. I, might, right. miss, like, I might miss like a meet and greet or something and have to push that till after the show. Sure. But the only standard I sort of hold myself to is, like I want my two feet on stage at the exact time my set's starting. And um, even to the point you where I'm Yeah, even, even, if, even if a promoter is like, you know what, I want to change things around a bit, we've got some extra production, we're going to start you 15 minutes late, I'll be like, it's all right, I'd rather start on time. Like, do, do yeah. not open on stage. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Well, man, thanks for doing this. It was so much fun talking with you. Absolutely uh, pleasure. Love it. This is our first yeah, uh, three-way video conference. If so you appreciate you rolling with it. Oh, no, it's been, been, good, been, been, been good fun. And uh, yeah, let's do it, do it again sometime. Nice. Yeah, well, we'll have to do it when we can meet up in person. Yeah, that'd be fun. So if you could, uh, if you could leave your, your fans with one thought uh, about the new album, what would you tell them? Um, other than please listen to it on repeat while you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Now nah, it's just the most honest. It's the most honest thing I've ever made. It's the hardest I've ever worked on an album nice. um, by far, and I think the results will will show. So, get it, listen to it, and I think also it's made for a time like now. And um, I think we couldn't be releasing it at a better moment. I'm not obviously none of us are glad of these circumstances, but like this this album is one that's made for getting people through tough times. So, um, get hold of it. Oh, that's great. Listen. Can't wait to hear it. Amazing. Nice Thank one. you. 
That was Gareth Emery on Rebel Radio with my co-host Ethan Bear. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Make sure you leave us a comment on Twitter, on Facebook. Everything is at Rebel Radio Net. We have videos of a lot of our episodes showing up on our YouTube page at Rebel Radio Net. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.